0: Thanks for joining us uh, in this week's episode of the podcast. My guest is Amanda Knox, joining us all the way from Seattle. Thanks for coming on, Amanda.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: How's things with yourself? How's things over in America at the moment? Obviously, we're in, in Scotland and it's very much in lockdown and we're stuck inside. So it's a challenging time for many. But how are things where you are?
1: Yeah, it's uh, similar. It's interesting that, um, I mean, it's kind of that way for everyone, right? Um, I mean, the kind of joke around here is, well, if you don't like quarantine, go to Georgia. They just don't do it. Um, So there's a lot of division in the United States around um, how much we all need to be protecting ourselves. Um, Here in Washington state, we're taking it very seriously. Um, We have in Seattle, we have this four step plan for reopening the city and King County in general. Um, But, you know, I we're all at home and we I've never lived through something like this where, you know, I I have to stay six feet away from my grandmother because she's, you know, doing chemotherapy, and she had recently went in for heart surgery. So there are particularly vulnerable people that we're all close to um, that we can't physically be close to. And in that way, you know, it's very similar to prison. Um, and in other ways, it's not. <laughs> in, in very big ways, it's not. Um, so yeah, it's, it's obviously a big burden on everyone. I think, um, a huge emotional burden for everyone. Um, the uncertainty of the future is challenging, um, for everyone. Um, so I'm feeling that everyone I know is feeling that I'm sure you're feeling that. Um, and I guess we're the one sort of Upshot to all of this is we're all in it together,
0: <laughs> so no it, one's
1: alone it? and feeling alone.
0: And it almost seems like there isn't light at the end of the tunnel, and, and we'll get there. So, uh, yeah, just for those that are, are listening, Amanda, I'd uh, imagine 90% of people that are tuning into this have, have heard of yourself and, and your story. But just to give people a bit of background about you, uh, who you are, what you're doing just now, and what brought you to where you are,
1: yeah. Um, so today, I am a journalist and criminal justice advocate. Um, I spend most of my time writing, researching, and interviewing people about either their experiences going through the criminal justice system or people who are working within the system to change it. Um, and this is not something that I was always meant to do. Um, I was never a true crime person growing up. I was a poetry and Harry Potter person. Um, so prison and the criminal justice system was the farthest thing from my mind. I never really had any experience with it. Um, I just assumed that bad people commit crimes and bad people go to prison. And I hopefully would never have to encounter any of that in my life. Um, And then I, when I was 20, I went to study abroad in Perugia, Italy. And shortly after I arrived, um, one of my roommates was murdered. I was living in a cottage in Perugia near the university with three other students, uh, one of whom was British. And it just so happened that The night of the break-in, she was alone. Um, This this person broke into our home. I don't know if he broke in before she came home from her friend's house, or if she was already home when he arrived. Either way, what resulted is her rape and murder. Um, And shortly after all of this was discovered, I was arrested. I was put through 53 hours of interrogation over five days. I was singled out. Um, There's a lot of debate about why I was singled out. Um, A lot of people have a lot of different theories. Um, You know, some people talk about whether or not I acted appropriately um, around the crime scene. Um, A lot of people talk about, I mean, a lot of it has to do with just how people thought I was responding emotionally to the situation. And unfortunately, that led to tunnel vision by the investigators and prosecutors. And they sort of put their foot down on any kind of theory that involved me in the crime, despite the fact that no physical evidence placed me there. Um, I had an alibi. I have no history of you know, criminal behavior or anything like that. I had no reason to to hurt my friend. Um, and they had evidence that someone else committed the crime, and yet they sort of went after me. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that the case became an international sensation very quickly. And so there was a lot of public response and pressure on the investigators to solve the case very quickly. Um, And then once they had solved the case and were wrong, they sort of had a choice, either admit that they were wrong and embarrass themselves in front of the world um, or dig in their heels and say that they were right all along and they chose that second path, um, which isn't uncommon. Anyway, what all of that That whole experience of being tried and imprisoned for years for a crime that I didn't commit, it really exposed me to the criminal justice system. It exposed me to the reality of prison and what kinds of people are living there and barely surviving there. Um, It helped me realize how... um, how flippant and casually cruel and dehumanizing both the court of public opinion and the criminal justice system can be. And um, it kind of became my lifelong mission to try to fix that. Um, I mean, I don't personally feel like I'm, I alone am ever going to make A tremendous change just by myself. It's, it's a whole human effort. All of us need to care about it. Um, but ever since I've been exposed to this reality, I can't stop thinking about it. Um, you know, they, a lot of my heroes in this world talk about becoming proximate to the injustice that you see in the world. And, you know, I didn't mean (laughs) to become proximate to this injustice. I was not on my radar. I was shoved into the proximity. And in fact, you know, the eye of the storm of this injustice. And, um, now that I am proximate, um, I'm staying there, um, because I can't look away.
0: Sure. And you mentioned, you know, you you were, you were 20 years old when you first went to Italy. I'd imagine when you're sitting on that plane on the way there, you know, you've got hopes and dreams of it being a fantastic trip in a, a wonderful country and, uh, you know, your, your whole future ahead of you. It seems that all very quickly that was soon taken away from you. Uh, yeah.
1: Um Yeah, a lot was taken from me. Um You know, it, it should be said that the most that was taken was from Meredith, my roommate. I mean, she was only 21 And she also, just like me, went, traveled to Italy to study abroad, dream trip, new culture, new people. And the thing that haunts me to this day is if I had been home that night, I could be dead. Um, So there are tragedies upon tragedies that resulted from this crime. Um, And yeah, I mean, just... Not too long ago when people were doing the sort of hashtag me at twenty um meme thing where they're on Instagram or on Twitter.
0: And i noticed showing... you put one on if you're sitting on the plane when you were on your way. Yeah.
1: On. Yeah, yeah. Um I did because 20 is a special year for me, a special year, you know. Um it's the year that I lost everything and there was no guarantee that I would get it back. Um, And, you know, a year ago, yeah, just a year ago, my youngest sister turned 20. Um, I'm 33 now. And so I'm 12 years older than my youngest sister. She was very small when I first went in. um, And she didn't really fully understand what was happening to me at the time. But when she turned 20, um, I couldn't help myself. I was like, so if you were me, you'd be going to prison now. (laughs) And she was just like, (gasps) (gasps) because, you know, 20 sounds like a big number when you're an eight year old. Um, But when you're 20, uh, you're still a kid, or at least I was, um, because I had grown up in such a sheltered, loving, protected um, environment like I. I never, when I was in prison, a lot of crazy things go in your mind when you try to ask yourself why, like, why is this happening to me? I asked myself that a lot um, at the time and continue to do so to this day. Um, But inside, a part of me wondered crazily if I had had such a good childhood that, um, you know, fate was finally catching up with me and being like, oh, wait weren't you supposed to suffer a little bit we'll just give you a lot of extra suffering to make up for the fact that you've never suffered um and as crazy as that sounds like you're in a situation where the existential crisis is so great that you're trying to seek any answer for to explain why this is happening to you when it doesn't make sense
0: yeah i I would like to touch on that time if it's okay with yourself obviously he says you know that you were 20 and all those things happened and and you mentioned yourself there you know you were a child and that's 13 years on from then I'm sure that many things have changed from then and certainly you might have dealt with things differently uh, if you're now in a different headspace but you know when, when you return to where you're staying in Perugia at that time and you, you discover what's essentially behind that door in the flat what, what starts going through your head at that time what, what, what are you thinking?
1: The first thing that I thought um, when I came home was that someone must have accidentally left the door open. Um, The front door of our cottage wouldn't stay closed unless you locked the door. And I figured someone might have left really quickly and just didn't fully lock the door. So, you know, I think like as I progressively discovered more and more things out of place or wrong in the cottage, I kept trying to think of why that might be. And I kept thinking of the familiar, right? Like, okay, the front door is open. Maybe someone just forgot to close the door. Okay. um, You know, I I took a shower and then I noticed that there was blood on the floor and I thought, oh, wow, that's unusual. Um, Maybe someone had their period or cut themselves. Like, all of these things went through my mind where I was trying to find a reasonable, rational reason why these things were happening. Um, it didn't immediately occur to me, of course, my roommate's been murdered. Like, that was so... Um,
0: it's so the last thing in your mind, yeah. I suppose, isn't it? It's I mean, so it
1: like, my mind rebelled against the idea that something like that, something as serious as that could have happened, um, and I'm... I mean, the one, you know, special grace out of all of this was I never actually saw her body. Um, We had already called the cops by then. And so they, alongside um, one of my roommate's friends, broke down the door to Meredith's room and found her body there. And I fortunately did not see it. Um, But the gravity of the situation really hit me in waves. And it hit, it took longer to hit me than you would think um, because I just had no experience with this. It was not something that I was prepared to process. And so step by step, I had tremendous emotional waves of like sadness and, and grief and fear and confusion and numbness and Disbelief, And so I kept cycling through these various emotions in response to discovering like, oh, the doors open. Oh, my gosh, there's a break in. Oh, my gosh, Meredith's missing. Oh, my gosh, she's dead. Like everything took me a while to process. And I mean, even, you know, as I was being interrogated, I didn't understand why I was being interrogated. They had handcuffs on me and I still assumed because they told me that I was a witness, that I wasn't a suspect. And it wasn't until I had already been in prison for, you know, a day or two that I was brought before a judge and finally told Amanda Knox, you are under investigation for the murder of Meredith Kircher. Like someone had to literally spell it out to me for me to realize and understand that that was what was happening to me so I think you know it
0: took a while Amanda you know obviously like you said to, to sink in and at first you were essentially assisting the, the police with their investigation and obviously in a foreign in, in America for example that would be a challenge but in a foreign country I can imagine that was even more difficult and you're, you're speaking a second language, and. Then very, very quickly, you know, it, it turned to the, the attention was on yourself and, and your boyfriend, Raffaele, and again, that you, you mentioned earlier on, you know, maybe the, the way that you were acting was reasons why they, they thought that you were a suspect, and do you, do you see where that's coming from? Would you agree with why they would think that, or do you, do you disagree with that?
1: Um, I, what I think is that... On the one hand, yes, I was the odd person out, right? Like, I was the one person in that whole scenario who didn't know how to dial 911 in Italy. Like, I didn't know how to do that. I had to have my boyfriend do it. Um, I was the one who couldn't fully communicate and understand what the police were telling me to do. Um, I was the one who had no... um, I was the one who was farthest away from my family and my culture and, um, everything that I knew and loved. So in that way, I was certainly the odd one out. Um, but on the other hand, like there's a thing that, um, researchers or a friend of mine, who's a researcher, uh, who became a friend of mine after everything, Um, have called the Philomena effect, which is actually named after one of my roommates. Um, And that is, you know, once someone is accused or once someone is suspected of something horrible, suddenly people rethink their perceptions of that person. So in the days leading up to my arrest, while I was being interrogated, I still was, had a relationship with my other roommates and we were talking about getting together and getting another apartment together and meeting with Meredith's family and, you know, nothing had changed between us. It was only once I was arrested and accused that suddenly people who had met me started rethinking about me in terms of sus- of suspicious terms. So I think that the investigators didn't know me. They had no reason to suspect me or not suspect me in the sense that they, you know, didn't have interactions with me before all of this. Um, I do think that they were exposed to me more than other people because I exposed myself to them. I made myself available to them. I was very, very... I mean, helpful. I I showed up when they called um, and I gave them every bit of information I could. I I think I must have spent more time in that police office than anyone um, because Raffaele and I, I mean, I was the one who came home that morning. I was the first person to sort of stumble upon this crime scene after it had occurred. And I think for that reason, they really honed in on me. Um, And then once they got a vibe, um, they decided to really hammer home on that vibe. One thing, though, that I really try to emphasize and a constant frustration that I have when people ask me about my behavior in those days is it does feel like People are trying to find fault with me for my own wrongful conviction. And one thing that I really like to point out to people is the person with the least amount of power in that situation was me. Um, The investigators had a lot more power than I did. The prosecutor had a lot more power than I did. Um, Their decisions led to my wrongful conviction, not mine. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of people ask me if I would have done things differently and, you know, I'm a 33 year old woman. Now I was a 20 year old kid then, of course I would react differently now, but I was a kid and I was trying to help and I do not fault my 20 year old self for what happened to her. Um, she didn't deserve that.
0: If we, if we take it into in custody, and again, I'll, I'll heart back to you know, uh, at this point, I believe that your your mother came over to visit you as well, and you, as you mentioned, there was hours and hours and hours of, of interrogation, and uh, many things of what you say is could potentially have been translated wrong, you know, picked up wrong. There could have been the double meanings there as well. At that point, did you feel that you were being treated unfairly by the by the prosecution or by the police, or, or did you? Because you were young and maybe a bit naive and had never experienced that before, did you think this is just what it's like when you're arrested? Or?
1: I mean, again, like I didn't even realize that I was being arrested. So I was so naive that I didn't compete. It didn't compute <laughs> that as they were, you know, strip searching me and, you know, taking photographs of my naked body and putting handcuffs on me, that this wasn't a part of being a witness to a very, very serious case. I um, put myself at the mercy of the police officers because I needed to trust them in that very, very scary, drastic situation. Um, I needed them to guide me and they guided me into a trap.
0: And I know there's been been plenty documented, you know, about that interrogation and I remember watching the documentary on, on Netflix as well, which I know that you're a part of. Uh, and uh, I can't remember the police chief's name, but this, certainly local police chief. And, and he mentioned, you know, there was part of that interrogation where you just almost snapped and, you know, you, you could feel yourself screaming and, and getting very frustrated. And what, what would you put that down to? Do you think that's just overarching pressure on yourself and maybe actually coming to the realisation that there oh, was something is serious here?
1: I mean, I understood that the situation was serious the entire time, right? Um, even if it took me a long time for the gravity of the situation to sink in, I was not confused about how important it was that I do everything I could to help the police. Um, I knew that was the right thing to do. Um, What became incredibly difficult and what ultimately broke me was discovering that no matter how much I was honest and no matter how much I repeated myself and no matter how many times I sat through the same questions over and over and over again, the police weren't happy with me. They were angry with me. In fact, they kept getting angrier and angrier and, you know, Uh, they got so angry that they slapped me. Um, that was the scariest, um, moment of my life was not understanding why I was being put through that. And again, you know, you're in a scary, drastic existential crisis situation and you try desperately to figure out why. And the only thing that I could think of, and in fact, I didn't even think it, the police told me this, was that I must have amnesia and that I must not remember correctly and that actually I must have witnessed the murder. And if I don't admit to that now, then I'm a liar. And I mean, going through this process of knowing that I didn't remember, you know, like I I did not witness this crime, but they're telling me I did. Like, I could not understand why did, they were
0: hurting you almost me. start to doubt yourself when you're in that situation?
1: Absolutely. I was made to doubt myself, and I was made to believe that something else was true. Um, And this is, you know, I thought for the longest time that this was something that only happened to me, and that I was a particularly broken person, but... I, since coming home, um, I've come into contact with lots of people who have been put through that situation. Um, And a lot of the work that I do now is trying to bring attention to, you know, interrogation techniques that break down anyone's ability to, to rationalize and, and you know, stay sane in that situation. It's great at breaking down guilty people and great at breaking down innocent people. And that's the problem. Um, So, you know, it's these kinds of things that I didn't know about as a kid that I now am trying to bring attention to because I know this is not, you know, we don't go to school and hear about what your rights are. We don't go to school and hear about how police can lie to your face. We don't, you know, like these are all things that we never even think we're going to need to know. And, of course, what happened to me is a very exceptional and rare thing. But it's not an exceptional and rare thing when it happens to a poor Black kid. So, like, these are all things that we need to be aware of and, I mean, in my
0: opinion, care about.
1: Um, so that's, yeah.
0: anyway. And I would imagine, you know, in the line of work that you're doing now, you would often see, and through your own experience as well, how much the role of the media can have on a trial, you know, or uh, on certainly painting a picture of someone that's innocent or guilty. or And that was something, I suppose, that, that played a big part in, in your trial. And was that something, I don't know when you realized, you know, Maybe when your mother first came over, the
1: extent of you know, this is a global news story? I mean, I didn't fully realize how big of a story it was until I came home. Um, because you know, Italian prison, you don't get access to international media. Um I just knew that every time I went into the courtroom, there were I was blinded by camera flashes. Um I knew that People who were sort of mythological figures, you know, the the Hillary Clintons in the world, the Donald Trumps of the world were commenting on my case. Um, it's interesting and... you
0: mentioned that because I'm sure Donald Trump at, at one point was asking people to boycott Italy as well. Is that correct? Is...
1: He did do that. Yes, he did. Um, I mean, I think the thing that...
0: And just to be clear, this was well before he was the president of the United States
1: indeed yes in fact I think he was calling for the president to intervene um and of course that's a very uh, it's <laughs> criminal justice systems and international law, law are a lot more complicated than that as much as I would have loved it if a you know SWAT team just you know took a helicopter in and, <laughs> and scooped me up like I knew that that wasn't going to happen um yeah it's. So to this day I'm I'm amazed at how much how many people are impacted by the criminal justice system and you know the media is a tool right like you're a media person I'm a media person um I have a podcast I you know I've done the scarlet letter reports my podcast is called the truth about true crime these are all ways of engaging with this topic in the media and the media is not good or bad. What it is, is it conveys information and that it's the quality of the information and the way that it is presented that, that will achieve an outcome. And unfortunately um, in my case, much of the media attention was very sensational Um, Its outcome was the goal. The goal outcome was to make money. It was not to, you know, shed light on a situation. It wasn't to, um, you know, challenge people's assumptions. It was about making money and exploiting people's assumptions and exploiting people's fantasies and fears about young women who are associated with crime um, and some
0: and, of the headlines, you know, Amanda, were, were really sensational. You know, there was lots of things about sex games going wild and there was no real, uh, in my gathering, there was no real evidence to suggest that was anywhere near the case. It was almost, you know, what is going to sell more newspapers here rather than getting down to the, the bottom line of what actually happened on the evening and who was involved.
1: So to be fair to the tabloid journalists who really ran with that, um, they didn't invent it out of whole cloth, right? Yeah. Um, The investigators and prosecutors were trying to understand how, or were were theorizing, trying to come up with a theory to explain how my roommate could get raped and murdered by me, right? And clearly, I'm not (laughs) raping my friend. So they came up with this theory of some kind of drug-fueled sex game. And they put me as the sort of dominatrix figurehead of that sex game because that was the only way that they could concoct a theory that would explain how Meredith was raped and murdered um, if I was involved. But again, that's like coming from we know that my roommate was raped and murdered. You don't have to construe an extra like fantasy crime on top of that, just because you want to fit someone who doesn't fit into that scenario in there, right? Like, there was a lot of just extraness to this case. Unfortunately, this case was actually very simple and it blew up into this complicated thing because people kept adding ideas and stories on top of that because none of the parts fit. They were trying to stick a square peg into a round hole and they couldn't do it. So they just invented whole new ideas and tried to shove things into it. Um, And again, like, unfortunately, that's the case in a lot of wrongful convictions cases. I've heard stories where, like, they finally test the DNA from a rape kit from, you know, 20 years ago and it's not the DNA of the person they put in prison for the rape and they say, "Oh, well, actually that 6-year-old must have had sex with someone earlier that day and that's that person's semen and then this guy real like the 6-year-old had consensual sex with someone earlier and then later she got raped by this other guy and that's why we didn't find his semen we found this other guy's semen. Like it's like it's insane. The number of ways that people will find reason to be right, to be right all along, even when the evidence is staring at them in the face. Um, and I think that's, you know, a very human and understandable impulse, but it's got to be tempered by accountability. So yeah.
0: And, and let, let's talk slightly about, about, obviously, when the conviction came through in your sentence you know, to, to 26 years, because from this point up until now, I would say, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but from the outside looking in, I would imagine those four years in a foreign prison have really shaped who you are just now. Uh, and as you touched on at the start, have really driven you on to do what you're doing in, in, in your career. What was, uh, firstly, what was it like when you, you first got convicted? Uh, when you realized it was 26 years, and I can imagine it was a whirl of emotions, but what was initially going through your head?
1: Um, so I was in prison for two years uh, leading up to my conviction. And why, and why so, did that
0: take so long, Amanda? Why was it?
1: <laughs> because it was allowed to take so long. i um,
0: because the that's investigation... not standard.
1: I mean... I was shocked. Um, I remember the day when they showed up with paperwork that said that they were allowed to hold me for up to a year with no charge. And I was shocked that a year of my life meant nothing to them. Um, And then a trial that lasted almost a year because we were having, you know, court dates a couple of times a week and just a million experts and a million witnesses. And again, blowing up a not complicated case into something incredibly complicated. Um, uh, Leading up to the conviction, I was convinced that when the verdict was handed down, I was going to go home. I was convinced. I was sure No matter all of the bad stuff that was being said about me in the media and the horrible stuff that was being said about me in the courtroom, once again, I was naive and I truly felt that the truth mattered, Um, and that it the truth would be the thing that came through in the end, the light at the end of the tunnel, kind of thing. Um,
0: And in the lead up to that as well, I mean, were you getting pressed each day by? Uh, people from the police or the investigators were they coming in and trying to get more from me or was it just a case of it's two years to the trial? You're in there, you know, sit and wait.
1: So the police were pushing. Um, I was in prison for eight months while they were investigating, and so I was continued to be pressured in the early months of my imprisonment. Um not necessarily by police investigators who were coming inside, but by, um, prison officials who were then reporting to police. Um, so yes, I was going through a lot for a long time. Um, and then when the reality struck that the truth didn't matter, um, and that the story was what mattered, um, I had a reckoning. Um, I realized that my life fairness wasn't a part of my life. Um, and that I was just one of those people that suffer. Um, I really had that moment of thinking, oh, I'm I my life is suffering. Um it's not, you know, working hard and it's not falling in love and it's not having babies, it's suffering. Um
0: and, and the, your family were there as well on the day, weren't they? And I, I'd imagine in their minds they also thought you were coming home. So that must make it a hundred times harder for everyone involved.
1: Yeah. Um I mean, I was very, very lucky and I've always been very, very lucky to have a very close and supportive family. And so they were all there. They were all there and ready to take me home. And uh, the first visitation that I had afterwards, um, my little sisters were there. I didn't get to see them very often um, because they were in school and. It was hard, especially the young ones, to come into the prison to see me. And it was breathtakingly bizarre to sit in front of them with 26 years, with a 26-year sentence between me and them. Um, and little Delaney telling me it was gonna be okay. Um My youngest sister. Um, It's funny. Um, In a lot of ways, a lot of this feels very far away. Um, Even when I'm doing my work, even when I'm deep diving into cases.
0: Because my life is in the the back of your mind, every single day, even though it seems far away, it's always present as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's just the. (sighs) There was never any guarantee that I would be freed. I mean, a lot of wrongfully convicted people have this like sense that, you know, the truth is going to is going to come through. And it may take a long time, but it's going to come through. And I intuitively understood that there was no guarantee of that. As soon as I was convicted, I understood that there was no guarantee that the right thing was going to happen. Um, and the fact that I'm out here today and I can do the work that I do is a tremendous blessing. Um And something that I do not take for granted um, because of what could have been. Like, I'm sitting here in front of you today and I could be dead. I could be in prison. Um, Those were realities that I escaped by the skin of my teeth. Um, And really not through anything that I did. Right? Like, I just happened to not be home that night. I was at my boyfriend's. Um, I just happened to be the roommate that the prosecutors and investigators, you know, narrowed in on. And then I just happened to, you know, finally get a judge who would allow an independent expert to speak to the forensic evidence. Like all of those things couldn't have happened. And I would be a different person today if they hadn't. Um, I don't know. Do you have something like that in your life?
0: No, no, I don't think so. Not, not really. Present. Come
1: on, a no,
0: life changing I, thing. I, I don't think so yet. No, not, not as of yet. Don't get me wrong. There's lots of times that you look back on and you think, Would I have done that differently? Or I wish that hadn't happened. And, uh, you know, there's things that keep me smiling, but no, not, not as of yet. I don't think I've had that light bulb moment or that, you know, life changing moment yet. I wouldn't say so. But I suppose, you know, in, in your line of work, At the moment, Amanda, you must see people who are going through hell similar to what you were going through yourself. And this could be a very, very silly question. But was there any point back then that, you know, there was a good day when you were in prison, you know, that you could say to people just now, as much as, you know, this might feel like the worst thing in the world, there, there might be times in there where you can have hope and, you know, that there might be light at the end of the tunnel.
1: Okay. This is a complicated question that requires a slightly complicated answer that I'm going to try to condense down as much as possible.
0: Sure.
1: I can affirm that there is no good day in prison. Um, What I can also affirm, however, is that you can always find meaning and purposefulness even in the worst situations. And, you know, these are, that's kind of a great thing to remember in these times um, when we're all struggling and we're all uncertain. Um, You don't need certainty in your life and you don't need to be free of struggle and free of pain in your life to do something meaningful and to feel like your life is worth it. So you know, one of the interesting bittersweet things about being imprisoned for a long period of time is you're in a world that doesn't value you and you have to make your own value for yourself in spite of everything. And to do that, you discover things about yourself. Um, I discovered a lot about myself, um, and what I was capable of by being put through that experience. Um, that isn't to say that I wish that experience upon anyone at all. Um, because I don't, um, But I have been able to, again, by the skin of my teeth, um, derive purposefulness from it, which is valuable. So no good day in prison. um, But I'm grateful for having pushed myself to make the best of an utterly hopeless situation
0: that makes sense and, and I suppose you know you've come out the other end and you've got your podcast now you've written books and things as well and mm-hmm. uh, do you feel that if it wasn't for your family you wouldn't have got there do you think it was that support network that really helped you get yeah
1: I do uh, very honestly I do um, I would not be able to you know do interviews or write articles or any of that today if I didn't have my family. And that's a big lesson um, for anyone who's been incarcerated, rightly or wrongly. Um, If you've been removed from society for so long, you need a support system when you get out if you have any hope of of having a productive life it's very very difficult to reintegrate after all of that um and i again was very lucky to have support and to feel like i belonged in freedom never at any time did my family fail to remind me that i belonged out there with them um that's why they they traveled so far to be with me. Um, they never made me feel abandoned, um, and I think that's as much, or uh, the reason why I am who I am today, as you know the whole bad part of it. Um,
0: it's a great point that you make there. You know that your your family constantly reminded you that you're entitled to this freedom. Because I'd imagine that there's so many people that even when you're trying to get on with your daily life and that should be in the past for you now, there's, it must be very hard to shake that tag for some people. You know, they've read these newspaper reports, they've forged their own opinion and for many that might not change.
1: Yeah, I mean, and again, that's for people who have been rightly and wrongly incarcerated. There's a lot of stigma attached to imprisonment. Yeah. Um, and it's very difficult to overcome that. There are hurdles that you have to leap over after you've been effectively crippled. Um, so I really, really give props to the to those of us who raise ourselves up. Um, and I deeply feel for those who who can't. You know. Um, So again, that's a lot of what the work that I do is just finding those people and finding those voices and, and writing about them and listening to them and valuing them. Um, Because I think that it's a shame when human beings are thrown away. Um, And there's a lot that can be learned from someone who has survived being thrown away.
0: Uh, in terms of your work just now, uh, obviously you must deal with people that go through these situations on almost a daily basis and it, it looks like you're really giving them a platform you know, for your podcast and through some of the TV shows that you, you've done as well to really get their story across there. Is there any specific ones that really jump out at you that think, you know, that was similar to my situation or I can completely resonate with what they're telling me here?
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, the first one that comes to mind is Jens Sering who was a German exchange student in the U S who was wrongly convicted back when he was 18 years old. Um, I spent a whole season of the podcast on his case and, um, you know, I saw him as, you know, a version of me that never got out. And of course now he's out. Like that's the amazing thing is like, there was no guarantee of him ever getting out. But after, 33 years, he was allowed to go home to Germany, um, just this past November. And he has been sending me weekly updates of the hikes that he's been going on and the food that he's been eating and nothing can get him down. And that is a very, very joyous thing for me. Um, but, you know, it's not just wrongly convicted people, right? Like, I spent a whole two seasons of the Scarlet Letter reports devoting myself to stories of women who had been vilified for whatever reason. Um, because there are so many things that went wrong <laughs> in my case that I see those same echoes in other people's stories. Um, and I try to reach out to people to say you're not alone um i mean and you know some people are struggling and some people are not like there's this girl named Daisy Coleman who was raped when she was 14 and you know left out in in her front yard like garbage and she was slut-shamed and vilified for coming forward and I think that, you know, there's this false dichotomy between victims of crime and victims of the criminal justice system, when in fact, crime victims and people like me have so much in common. Um, A really good friend of mine is named Jennifer Thompson. And she has this wonderful, beautiful program called Healing Justice, where She brings victims of crime and victims of the criminal justice system together in a room to find healing and common ground together. Um, It's a beautiful program. Um, Another program that I've been looking into and I think is just wonderful is called the Frederick Douglass Project. And what it does is it invites people from the free world to come and just sit down and talk with incarcerated folks and to spend time together and find common ground and to be proximate to each other. I think that this sort of us versus them mentality has been deeply damaging. And this project, which I think is so cool, is attempting to give people access to the monsters and vice versa. Um, and that's doing a tremendous amount of good because people have, we talk about the media. Well, the media is this machine that works for us and it gives us what we want and we have to tell it what we want. And if what we want is a compassionate, humanizing, truth grounded information We need to demand that of our media, not the sensational, you know, splashy headline for the fun of it and the casual cruelty of it, because it's so easy to judge and hate others. And it's a lot harder to pause and take the time to understand the facts and the context of every human being situation that you encounter. It's very difficult work, um, but it's worthwhile work and I'm proud to do it. I'm very lucky that I get to do it. Um, I've had incredible opportunities. There's this wonderful platform that I write for called crime story that is really focused on trying to give voice to the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated population. It's amazing um, obviously the truth about true crime, I'm talking with people, especially like the, the pre- like my last, um, season of the podcast was all about this great, this tremendously sensational case called the Preppy murder, um, that happened back in New York in the eighties. And the victim of this crime was sensationalized and slut shamed, and it was totally unnecessary. Um, and revisiting these cases and looking for echoes of them in our current events is incredibly useful, I think. Um, It's okay that we were wrong about something and that we learn from it. I don't know, I'm kind of preaching now.
0: (laughs) Do do, do you ever feel like, you? obviously you've shown a light on lots of wrongful convictions, do you ever feel that people come to you with wrongful, or they would say I've been wrongly convicted and you think No, you've not. (laughs) I don't,
1: you know, I, before I like sort of put my foot down and say, you've been wrongly convicted, I am going to investigate that case. Um, But, you know, I get lots of people, um, not just wrongfully convicted people, again, lots of people who reach out to me to say, hey, I'm being slut shamed or hey, I'm being publicly shamed or, Hey, I know someone um, who is is struggling through something. Like, you'd be surprised the number of people who reach out to me um, either seeking support or understanding. I think just understanding is a big part of it. People want to feel like they're not alone and they're not crazy for going through what they're going through. Um, People who are being bullied. I get a lot of people reaching out to me about being bullied
0: um and I'd imagine you're quite open and taking this on board it's like you you would get back to everyone that gets in touch with you because
1: I mean I try I'm also not the most technologically advanced so sometimes I get lost on Instagram I try um it's a lot of it's a lot of people um and I try to follow up as best I can um and you know but I'm not perfect unfortunately
0: and uh, I'll go a bit more light touch there. Uh, I remember reading uh, or watching an interview previously with yourself and you were saying that when you were in prison, you got quite a lot of people writing to you and you, there was some Irish people wrote to you and sent you some CDs. And was, that, mm-hmm. was, there any, was there ever any Scottish people got in touch with you?
1: You know, I'm sure there was. Um, I'm trying to think if I remember a specific... I mean, I definitely remember the Irish ones because... Clearly, they sent me CDs and yeah. there was this feeling of like, yeah, rebel against the, the authorities. They're wrong. Um, like that was that I really appreciated. Um, I'm sure I received a letter from someone in Scotland. Um, and if that person is listening right now, I love you. And I'm so sorry. I don't remember. <laughs> um, but I got I. um I, I got letters from all over the world and some of them were kind and some of them were cruel and some of them were curious. Um, but most of them were sent as a letter of support to say you aren't forgotten. And that's huge because being in prison, one of the biggest things is you feel forgotten. You're, you're literally taken from the world. Um, and that, that, was very, very encouraging. So I need to get up to Scotland. Um,
0: Have you been before?
1: I've never been to Scotland, no. no, And I've been to Ireland once and I loved it. Everyone was so kind to me. Um, And so I've sort of have this expectation of a very like comfortable, um, open place. Um, At least that's how I was treated when I was in Ireland.
0: Yeah, very um, similar, I would say. I think that's a fair assessment.
1: Yeah, it's just there's a warmth. I don't mm. know. Like there's there's this warmth that I she, just, just want
0: people want to speak to people. And if they don't recognize them, they're almost curious in a friendly way, I would say.
1: Yeah, I mean that's so charming. It's it's um and and not just charming. I mean, charming is kind of condescending. Like it's um it's humanizing. Right. It's like yeah. the human recognizing the human and the other and going, I see you like that's, you know, it's not someone who's too busy to, to notice that you're another human being in the world. Like there's something very genuinely, you know, self-realized about being someone who's willing to say, hey, there, I see you. How you doing?" you doing? Know? Um, so I appreciate that um, about all y'all.
0: <laughs> and Touching back on something that we we spoke slightly about earlier was uh, obviously you supported Donald Trump back in back in the day, and he was saying you know boycott Italy and and you very much had your back. Would you have his back now or what? What's your what's and what's going on in the states? Oh.
1: I mean I don't think that politics should work like that. I I disagree with a lot a lot of his policies and I very openly disagree about them. One thing that I will hand it to him. Is he did pass the first step act, which I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it um, there's this big thing in the U.S. where we had this sort of three strikes you're out law, that started in California but sort of spread across the country and also you know in various forms became this federal law, that said if you commit. You know, three crimes. Like, sorry, you're out. You're going to be life imprisonment, no matter what that third crime is. And the first stepped act is was meant to pull that back and to rethink and reexamine some of the life sentences that have been imposed upon people federally. Um, which means that you know, people who especially people who are committing nonviolent crimes or crimes that we would be considered misdemeanors today, um, are getting a second chance at life. And that's a big deal. And that is something that Trump's administration passed. Um, it's something that had bipartisan support because of course it's common sense. And that's the, the spirit that our country is moving in, in a bipartisan way. Um, but my goodness, am I worried about the environment and am I worried about the social fabric of society and am I and I'm especially worried about um, how truth has been called into question um, how, you know, sort of politically in society and societally, um, what is considered true um, is no longer, you know, people have less faith in facts anymore. Um, and I think in large part that has resulted from the sort of political wins in the country, um, especially surrounding the Trump presidency. And that's very scary to me because if we can't even agree on what facts are, then how in the world are we ever going to find common ground? And, you know, address policy. Um, that's something I worry about a lot.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because there is something to be said about the whole fake news thing and, and Trump shutting down journalists before they can ask questions or speak. But I suppose for yourself, there must have been times where you were shouting at the, the newspapers fake news and, and whatever else. So it's, it's almost full circle, isn't it?
1: It's interesting because like, it's not like there, it, fake news isn't real, right? Like, Again, Media is a tool, and it can be a tool of information or misinformation. The problem is is when people believe what they want to believe instead of what there is reason to believe. And I think Trump, like many human beings in the world, we all are guilty of this, believes what he wants to believe. And we all need to push ourselves, all of us, because we are all guilty of this to believe what we have reason to believe um and i think that's that requires more work (laughs) um but more work is worth
0: it totally what's the future hold for yourself and what's what's coming up next what have you got planned
1: well, I'm my husband and I are hard at work, so um, I'm going to give myself a shameless little plug and, and say. And work together? Is
0: that correct?
1: <laughs> well, just please follow me um, on Twitter uh, at Amanda Knox and on Instagram at a Knox, um, and you can follow all of my exploits that way. Um, but again, I'm I have a lot of things in the works. Um, the things that you can find now are um my written work for crime story um you can visit my podcast the truth about true crime again there's a whole new season that's in development right now but i have five whole seasons leading up to that you can catch up on the fourth one is my favorite um that's vigilante justice and um obviously the scarlet letter reports um and yeah that's that's what i've been up to and my husband is a huge part of it we work together um he is my everything (laughs) and he's my co-writer and my co-producer and my audio engineer um do you have to say
0: that because he's going to listen back is that why you're why you're giving him so much praise?
1: i mean well no he's he's not (laughs) even in the room actually right now literally right now he probably should be working but he's uh working on his dungeons and dragons character we're leveling up um we we played over the weekend and we're leveling up this week and uh he has a whole new spell set that he has to work out so he's working out his uh his spells for his wizard gnome character
0: (laughs) (laughs) the excitement the excitement's building for the weekend already i can feel it (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's true actually i'm excited because the spacex is supposed to be launching so we should go check that out because it's been a while since we sent people up up there
0: <laughs> totally. Totally, amanda thank you so much for your time I really appreciate that
1: thank you